This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's my pleasure today to welcome Joyce Maynard to Story Hour. Joyce was born in New Hampshire, and she began writing early and won numerous awards as a student. She regularly contributed to Seventeen magazine, and after entering Yale University, she sent some of her writing to the New York Times magazine and was asked by them to write an article. Her essay, An 18-Year-Old Looks Back on Life, ran as a cover story when she was 18, just to make all you students out there feel horrible about yourselves. In 1975, Joyce joined the staff of the New York Times and later wrote syndicated columns, stories, and reviews for the Times and other magazines, including Mademoiselle, Newsweek, Oprah, and Salon. She also contributed regularly to NPR and CBS Radio. Joyce is the author of 15 books. She published her first novel, Baby Love, in 1981, and Booklist wrote about it, Rarely has anyone written as poignantly or sympathetically about women, an awesomely good book. In the New York Times Review, Ann Tyler wrote about the novel that it was a pleasure, almost a voyeuristic pleasure, a very fine book indeed. Joyce's other fiction includes the novel To Die For, which was made into a film by Gus Van Sant in 1995, starring Nicole Kidman and Matt Dillon. Her latest novel, After Her, takes us into the life of two young sisters in San Francisco in 1973 as their father, a charismatic police detective, tries to stop a serial killer known as the Sunset Strangler. Publishers Weekly described the book as exquisite and beautifully written. Booklist writes that Maynard consistently brings emotional authenticity to the long arc of her characters' lives and to the joy and loss they experience, a profoundly moving chronicle of the primacy of family connection. Joyce's nonfiction includes her 1999 memoir, At Home in the World, which traces the strange and painful course of Joyce's relationship with Salinger. Michiko Kakutani praised the memoir for its unsparing self-scrutiny, its maturity, and emotional candor. Joyce has taught numerous writing programs, and she currently runs workshops in both fiction and memoir in the U.S. and internationally, including the Lake, and I'm going to butcher it, Atitlan Writing Workshop in San Marcos, La Laguna, Guatemala, which she founded in 2002. She performs as a storyteller with The Moth in New York and with Porchlight in San Francisco. She now, well, she will soon be writing from a gypsy caravan. She makes fantastic pie, and she is a wonderful dinner companion. So please welcome me, join me in welcoming Joyce Maynard. What a great, cozy room. I, I feel I should have brought cookies along or popcorn or something. I, um, I love the idea of people who, I think Gigi was suggesting, if you want to um, get a book after the reading or during the reading, I love the idea that I might give a reading that was so exciting to you that you had to hop right out of your chair and get the book. Um, but um, I won't feel offended if you hold up off till later either. Um, I... Um, I actually, I want to say, Melanie, that I so appreciated in your introduction what you didn't say. Um, I've been a writer for 42 years. I've, I've published nine novels and more essays and columns and short stories than, uh, than I could begin to remember. But um, it is a, a part of my story that would not have been of my choosing, that if a person 
wanted to very swiftly identify me to somebody else. Oh, I'm going to see this reading of this uh, writer named Joyce Maynard. If they were going to say one thing about me, they would probably say the name of a man that I slept with for 11 months of my life when I was 18 years old. In no way does that define me, but it follows me forever. Um, actually, in the uh, Washington Post's review of the, of the most recent novel, you know, published 41 years after I last uh, uh, set foot on that threshold, um, uh, the, the first paragraph of the review spoke not of my book, but of Catcher in the Rye. Um, so I, I liked it that you didn't say that. Um, it's been something to overcome. Um, for, for many years to, I, to, to have my identity be my identity and not as an attachment to somebody else's story, particularly a very powerful man. Um, but actually, I am going to talk about that story tonight, um, especially because I think there are quite a few students in the room and young women. And um, a big piece of my story, even as a woman uh, who hasn't been a young woman for a very long time, has to do with the lessons of my own youth. Um, So I have to actually start um, with when I was very young. Um, I grew up in a small town in New Hampshire, um, and my parents were both brilliant, um, wildly uh, talented and gifted artists, artists in their own right and wildly frustrated in their artistic lives. My father was a painter whose paintings were never seen by anyone in, but the people in our family in our attic late at night where he drank and painted, drank and painted. Um, and he was a very serious, very passionate painter. I've never known anybody to love art more than my father, but a deeply frustrated, brokenhearted artist, I would say. My mother um, was daughter of Russian immigrant Jews whose, whose goal in life was to get a good education and soar out into the world. Um, she, she scrabbled her way to get a college education, then graduate school, and got herself to Radcliffe in the 1940s, where she was summa cum laude, graduated to find she could not, as a woman and wife and mother of the 1950s, she could not get a job. Um, It would have been different, I think, if she lived in Berkeley, but she lived in a small town in New Hampshire. And so both of my parents poured their prodigious energies and frustrations. They actually had two daughters, but one of them rejected this role into me. Um, I do not remember being so young um, that I wasn't writing. I was, or at least before I was writing, I was giving dictation to my mother. And she was taking my writing very seriously, typing it up, and mailing it off to magazines. It sometimes said that I, I started off writing for the New York Times or Seventeen. Actually, my first publication was in Humpty Dumpty magazine <laughs> in the 1950s. Um, uh, And I felt from the beginning a huge sense of obligation to lay success at my parents' feet. There is, um, in Yiddish, there's a word for it, and the word is nachis. It is the pride that a child bestows on the parents. I was a driven, probably obnoxiously driven kid, um, so I began mailing off my manuscripts, um, suggestions that I write for magazines. I didn't actually confine this to magazines. I, I was a TV watcher. I wanted to know what normal families were like, and I actually thought if I watched TV, I'd I'd find out and understand. This was the era of the perfect all-white situation comedy families of the uh, 50s and 60s. And so I I wrote a letter to CBS television saying that if uh, Angela Cartwright was ever incapacitated in her role in the show Make Room for Daddy, I was available. (laughs) 
Um, but it was it was the writing category of my ambitions that began to um, deliver results. Um, uh, and I think anybody who grew up in that household would know a thing or two about how to write. I grew up in a boot camp of writing. Um, I adored my parents. My parents were extraordinary people who spoke in paragraphs and had a good portion of Western literature committed to memory and quoted it regularly. But um, it was not a relaxing or uh, safe-feeling way to grow up. Um, I, I wrote a letter to Seventeen magazine and suggested that I write for them and sent a bunch of my work. And they, um, I told them that I wanted to um, uh, write about the Miss Teenage America pageant. And truthfully, I wanted to write one of those really snarky, nasty articles where you make fun of the, the cheerleaders that you really wish you were one of. And the editor at Seventeen wrote back this sort of form letter almost and said, really, we'd only be interested in an article on the Miss Teenage America pageant by somebody who participated in the pageant, by which she was no doubt meaning, you know, like Miss Teenage New Hampshire. I knew I wasn't going to be that. Uh, but I, I, a girl who actually could not speak to a boy without rehearsing my little lines of dialogue in advance, I called up the pageant offices in Fort Worth, Texas, and I said, this is Joyce Maynard with Seventeen Magazine, and I'd like to be a judge of your pageant so that we can do a story about it. And they said, okay. <laughs> and my mother and I took apart an old uh, dress of hers from the 1940s and put it back together in 1969 style, and I flew to Fort Worth, Texas, where I got to judge all the cheerleaders. And I wrote that snarky article, which I was very proud of, and Seventeen ran it in a much diluted form that made me really upset because all of my best writing was gone. So I took that article, and I was by now a freshman in college, and I mailed that along with some of my other clippings, I'd probably not Humpty Dumpty, to the editor-in-chief of the New York Times to suggest that I write for him. And lo and behold, he wrote back and said, okay, I think this is actually a story to remember that sometimes, you know, the thing that you think is impossible to do, nobody else actually suggests it. I did. He said, okay. And he gave me an assignment to write what was probably the only story I was equipped to write um, at the age of, I was then 17 actually, um, which was the story of my own growing up. And I, I wrote a story, um, delivered it three weeks later, um, the New York Times sent a photographer to... Actually, they, they, they were going to cut the story. It was, I think I delivered it at about 6,000 words. I had a lot to say. I'd been saving up for a whole 17 and a half years. Um, they cut it back, and I, I thought, I really want to restore the length, and I went so far as to inquire into the cost of advertising space in the New York Times, thinking, I'll buy back my space for my article. Um, uh, about three weeks before the article was to run, they send a photographer to take my picture. I put on my blue jeans. I, I, I pose in the Yale Library, actually. And um, in April of what uh, was my freshman year at Yale, um, and if you, if you were a, a student in college on the East Coast in 1972, you would probably remember this photograph. There, plastered over the cover of the New York Times Magazine section, was a full-color picture of me in my blue jeans. Two days later, three enormous sacks of mail on my, the, the steps to my dormitory room with um, every conceivable offer and opportunity that my mother had dreamed of for me. The Nachas 
spilling out now um, over my parents' feet, um, offers to model for Mademoiselle magazine and, and have lunch with editors in the Palm Court and go to Hollywood. And I, my favorite was um, an, an invitation to audition for The Exorcist, a part I did not get. Um, but I also got serious offers from, uh, from book editors to come and talk about a book, magazine editors, um, uh, people who wanted me to go on radio, go on TV. It, um, I think for any young person, it would have been a pretty heady experience. But for a very um, naive and um, pretty unexperienced um, small-town girl from New Hampshire, I didn't own a passport. I'd never left the country or gone um, across the Mississippi River. It was, it was an intoxicating experience. And then I got to a letter very different from all the others. Um, one page, single space, typewritten on a clearly very old typewriter. And the, the letter began by saying, Dear Miss Maynard, um, I, I bet you're sitting in your Yale dormitory room right now, surrounded by piles of letters from magazine editors and book editors and radio people and people wanting you to have lunch at the Palm Court uh, at the Plaza Hotel and, and model clothes in Mademoiselle magazine and every single thing that in fact had been offered and suggested to me. And the author of the letter went on to say, I want, and there's, believe me, I have, it has not escaped me that there's some irony in this, these words, um, I... I I admire your writing, I think you're a real writer, and I urge you to be careful. You will be exploited. Um, He went on to say a lot of nice things about my writing and our kinship to each other. He said he, too, had published his work work young. He knew a thing or two about publication and its its corruption, or its powers to corrupt. Um, and by the time I got to the end of the letter, I, it was also a funny letter, I have to say. It was filled with a kind of wry Jewish humor, actually half-Jewish humor, exactly what I was and what he was, and I, he pointed out that kinship too. Um, and I felt by the time I got to the end of the letter, before I got to the end of the letter, I had an experience very like what now several generations of readers of The Catcher of the Rye in the Rye have felt reading that book. Aha, here at last is a person who knows me, who understands me and my loneliness and isolation and sadness and confusion and, and rage and, and yearnings. Um, And it was really that sense that I had found a friend, a friend only, um, much more than the name at the bottom of the page that that filled me with the the joy that I had. But the name at the bottom of the page was, obviously, you'll know by this point, um, that of J.D. Salinger, who even in 1972 was um, very known to be a recluse. I wrote back, um, Dear Mr. Salinger, and a correspondence um, uh, uh, began that occupied all of my energy and, and obsession for the rest of my, um, what proved to be my one and only year of college. I stand here. I always feel a, a, a stab of regret when I walk onto a college campus that um, I didn't graduate from one. Um, But when school got out that spring, having a pile now of letters from the man 
um, who I already felt to be my best friend in the world. Um, the first thing I did was to make myself, actually, I, I came from New Hampshire. I went back to New Hampshire. I was a New Hampshire girl who always wanted to get to New York. He was a New Yorker who had gone to New Hampshire. I went back to New Hampshire um, to see the man I perceived as my spiritual mentor, teacher, guide, and best friend in the world. Um, he was 53. I was a very young 18. Um, and he perceived the relationship differently from how I did. Um, within a matter of weeks, I had given up my full scholarship at Yale, pretty much severed connection with my friends, my family, a pretty great job that had been offered to me at the New York Times, and moved in with Salinger. Um, I did, I had... Um, and, and I should say that from the day I moved in, I was no longer the glorious, perfect girl. He said to me as I moved in with my Rolling Stones and Joni Mitchell albums, um, he said, you're behaving like a teenager. <laughs> and I spent the next 11 months trying desperately to be who he wanted me to be. And you can imagine how successful I was or how successful any 18-year-old girl would be at that endeavor. Um, I had signed a contract to write a book, um, um, an undertaking um, that Jerry had absolute contempt for. Um, But I I really did want to write that book. I was was guiltily writing that book every day. But I also, I wrote that book with an enormous sense of conflict because I knew all the things that he disapproved of, publishing a book, being high on the list. And three weeks before that book was to be published, and at the time I made no particular connection between these events, although I surely do now, Um, but three weeks before its publication, um, on a trip to Florida with Jerry and his children, who were just a few years younger than I, um, he put two $50 bills in my hand, um, uh, said that he was weary of me and wanted me to, uh, disappointed in me and my shallow ambitions and wanted me to get out of his life, to return to the house in New Hampshire, clear out my belongings, and be gone. Um, now, one of the many differences between being a 60-year-old woman, which is who I am now, and an 18-year-old girl, and there are probably some young women here, not too much older than 18, and I'd hope that you're already past where I was at that point. But um, if a man said to me today, even one of the things that he said to me that day on Daytona Beach, I would think less of the man. But an 18-year-old girl who believes that she is in the presence of a, of a spiritual leader, teacher, seer, and and practically her religion, the wisest, most powerful, most insightful, perceptive, and brilliant um, individual she's ever met, if, if, if that girl hears those words, she thinks less of herself. I returned to New Hampshire. I cleared my things out of that house and never went back to college and did not go to New York City either. Um, I had a little bit of money, actually, from publishing that book that I had no taste for anymore, and I bought a farm in New Hampshire didn't take much in those days, and lived a, a pretty um, isolated life there for several years. Uh, ironically enough, there is some humor to this story. In fact, there's lots. Um, CBS Radio, having identified me as the voice of my generation, um, although I was pretty far out of step with my generation by this point, um, hired me to be a, a three-times-a-week political commentator political commentator on national CBS radio. I was debating um, a, a, a conservative commentator by the name of Phyllis Schlafly, and I'd occasionally, and I'd, I'd write my, my, my commentaries and my thoughts about my generation 
1973 now, um, from my farm in New Hampshire where, where days went by that I didn't see another person um, except maybe the man with the rototiller. Um, I, I took on, a, I, I had been instructed by Salinger, he barely needed even to tell me this, I knew it, to never speak of him. And it is actually the classic act of a person who has, has secrets that he is ashamed of, to tell somebody else that they must not tell that story. But I adhered to that story. I continued to be a writer, and over the years I became a much braver writer than I started out to be, um, disclosing all kinds of things that I would once have thought didn't, didn't fit that nice girl who was the voice of her generation identity that the New York Times and I had carved out for me. But there remained one story that I never told um, out of a sense of loyalty to this man so much more important than I. Um, And I continued to believe that it was my obligation to respect his desire that I never speak of him. I was asked about him probably every week, often every day, because it it was known that I had left Yale to move in with him. And I always said, oh, I I don't speak of him. The event that altered that utterly happened when my oldest child, I did eventually marry, marry and divorce, um, and had three children, have three children now grown. My oldest child, my daughter Audrey, turned 18, the age that I was when everything changed in my life. And I had a little, a kind of little breakdown at that moment. A, a, a good friend of mine who, who did not know anything of my story of my own age 18 experiences, because I never spoke of them, um, but who, who had gone to Vietnam when he was 18 and had a, a total 100% breakdown of PTSD-related breakdown when his oldest son turned 18. Um, my friend Joe said to me, what in God's name happened to you when you were 18, Joyce? And of course I knew. Um, and that weekend when my children went to see their father, I took out a stack of letters that I had not looked at for 25 years. They were in the very back of my closet. And I laid them out on the bed, and I read them with the ear now and eyes of a a 43-year-old woman. And they sounded different. Um, And what I felt was not rage or a a, a sense of uh, urge for vengeance, but it was, I was, the the old obligation to protect the great man was totally, had melted away. And what I felt, what I had never felt, which was the, that I myself was deserving of protection, um, uh, that had been too large a a leap for me to make. But when I imagined my 18-year-old daughter in the circumstances that I had been, it wasn't hard to shift my allegiance to the girl. Um, and it was that experience that inspired me to write this book, At Home in the World, um, uh, and to give myself permission to tell the story I'd never told. Um, I'm now going to gallop really fast over what happened then. Um, it was an excruciatingly difficult book to write and, an, excru- and, and a, an amazingly easy book. I wrote I wrote the whole thing in a month. I could say a month and P.S. 25 years of not writing it. Um, and I very naively supposed when I published that book that it would be, number one, that it would be read. And that when it was read, if I did a good enough job as a writer, the story would be understood. But 
if you'd been around reading book reviews in the fall of 1998, what you would have seen almost without exception from all quarters, from the New York Times to Time Magazine to Washington Post and all around, was utter condemnation, not even of my book, but of me. Um, Many reviewers actually saying very proudly, you know, I would never read this book. This would be a disloyal act to a great writer to read this kind of trash. Um, uh, The Washington Post called it the worst book ever published. Um, Time magazine actually said something very helpful. They said, well, the one good thing about At Home in the World is now that Joyce Maynard has told this this, uh, sickening story, um, we'll never have to hear another word from Joyce Maynard again. And those were helpful words because I had every intention of proving them wrong. Um, and I'll, I'll just say now, because I really my favorite part of, of any event like this is the moment when I get to hear from you and know what's on your mind. But um, uh, that was about six books back. Um, there's actually only one book in which I talk about Salinger and 14 books in which his name doesn't come up and a lot of other characters who ultimately interest me in a much deeper way, do. Um, and I, who I am is not the girl who for 11 months slept with Salinger. But there is a part of that young experience that I carry with me in a very deep way. And that is the part that is a, 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 will always be a champion of the, the, the untold story, the person who has a shameful, supposedly shameful piece of her or his experience, which he or she carries buried with a sense of needing to protect, probably not her own self, but somebody else. Um, and it's why I love to teach, and, and why I, although I write mostly fiction these days and have mostly written fiction for the last... 10 years, 15 years, um, what I really love best to teach is memoir. And, and what I love to do and what I have experienced again and again is the joy of um, helping other voices, other writers or people who, who aren't writers, give birth to their story. Um, I was going to read, because I so don't want to be justified by this, I was, I was going to read um, a little something from... Uh, my novel after her, um, which is the most recent novel. And, you know, whether we write memoir or fiction, our lives are always in it. If you lined up all my novels, and I'm not suggesting you do this, but if you read them all back to back, you'd know plenty about me and my obsessions. Um, and one of them, for sure, is adolescence. I go back, I have written five books that have, and they're adult books, not young adult books, whose central character is, is, is a 13-year-old. And I think it is because I, I recognize that as the sort of the age before all the other things happen. Um, the age when, um, and I, I will never suppose that a 13-year-old is in possession of, of true innocence. I wasn't, um, and my I was 13 in much simpler times. But before life has broken you down or tried to in so many of the ways that it does later on. Um, 
the, the narrator of the, of the novel After Her, the, after her, the central characters of After Her are, are two, two adolescent girls, or an adolescent girl and her younger sister, a 13-year-old and 11-year-old, who's, who witnessed their father. It's very loosely inspired by a real case in Marin County, the Trailside Killer, and two women who I met whose father was the homicide detective in charge of the, the search for the killer. Over a course of two years, couldn't find him. And these two girls who idolized their father, who worshipped him as the great man, theme there, um, uh, watched him slowly destroyed by his inability to catch the killer. And they do, the characters in my book do what the real girls did not do, but what seemed like such a 13-year-old girl thing to do. They decide they're going to help their father catch the killer. Um, And the way they're going to do it is by setting themselves up as bait for the killer. And they create this crazy plan. My my favorite bad review of this book said, you know, this plan that these girls create is just so ridiculous. Well, yes, that was the point. I'm rather proud of their ridiculous plan. But it's a plan that actually works. It had to work. I had to. I didn't want to cheat you as readers. I wanted to make sure that you actually got to see this 13-year-old and 11-year-old confronting a multiple, a serial murder and rapist on Mount Tamalpais, and I don't mind saying I don't, I'm not giving away anything important to this book when I say I did not want to give you a book where they got raped and murdered. I, I wanted to give you a book where they survived without any help from some big, strong man galloping along with a gun. So I had to figure out how they were going to do that, and, and the story really is about young girls taking control of their own destiny. Um, But I'm going to read you just a very short passage so that we'll have time for questions. Um, When the narrator of the book, who is the 13-year-old girl now grown up, steps back from the story for just a moment to reflect on the nature of 13-year-old girls. And um, I see a few people here who were 13 not so long ago. So um, I I always hope I get it right. In my 44 years of life, here is something I've learned about 13-year-old girls. I know this as somebody who used to be one long ago and used to be the sister of one and the friend of others and the ex-friend. 13-year-old girls live in two different worlds. They exist like citizens of two distinct countries. And though these two places are as different as Croatia is from New Guinea or Mercury from Saturn, they float between the two as effortlessly as a person might from one side of the Golden Gate Bridge to the other. Partly, a 13-year-old girl is still a child, capable of finding joy and setting grass on fire in a tin can, or thrill in the sight of a neighbor answering the ring of the doorbell and opening the door to discover that no one is there, only a rustle in the bushes. 13-year-old girls can actually believe that the reason they won't get to marry John Travolta is because he's got a girlfriend already, and that Peter Frampton's getting a haircut qualifies as a tragedy, and that receiving a call from a particular boy, or a particular girl for that matter, is the most wonderful thing that ever happened. 13-year-old girls believe in heroic fathers and wicked stepmothers. They believe the words to songs and the advice of other 13-year-old girls, and that the first boy they love, they will love forever. Their bodies, mine at 13 anyway, may resemble those of boys more than the bodies of women, but inside the bodies of these girls, something is going on, unlike anything that exists in the bodies of boys, the bodies of men. Their breasts swell, of course, the uterus fills with blood, the longing for touch may feel to a girl this age as real as fire. 
A 13-year-old girl hates her mother, loves her father. Hates her father, loves her mother. What is she supposed to do? 13-year-old girls are 13-year-olds are big and small, thin and fat, neither both. They have the smoothest, most perfect skin, and sometimes overnight their faces are a mess. They may weep over the sight of a dead bird and appear heartless at the funeral of a grandparent. They're tender, they're mean, they're brilliant, dumb, ugly, beautiful. Now comes the sex part. Sex is sickening and scary and irresistible. She doesn't want to think about sex. She thinks of nothing but. Everything's a drama to her. She feels things ten times more than a 15-year-old or a 10-year-old. When she bleeds, or in my case, when she doesn't, she is the possessor of the most powerful secret. How can it be that a person can walk around as if nothing unusual is going on when right between her legs there's all this blood? She looks in the drawers of the people for whom she babysits in search of sexual paraphernalia, peels back the wrapper on a condom and blows it up like a balloon, then stuffs it in her pocket to destroy the evidence. And if she finds the blouse of a, or a, dress that in, a blouse or a dress that interests her belonging to the wife of the couple for whom she is babysitting on a Friday night or a piece of lingerie, more likely, she may even try it on. She lies. One day, she tells a girl at school that she's the world's first test tube baby. She has pulled her underpants up higher than normal over her waist. So when she lifts up her shirt, she can point to her bare skin and prove it. See, no belly button. Being 13 years old herself, the other girl believes this story. She sends a note, anonymous naturally, to an unpopular boy in her class in which she tells him that she knows he wet his pants that time on the bus coming home from the field trip. She is that mean, but she is also capable of great kindness. On that same bus trip, she sat with the cerebral palsy girl, the one who drools. Well, that's, that's my narrator. And she's one of the 50 or 60 characters in my books who's me. Sometimes they're male, even, but I'm, I'm, I'm in all my books. Um, in, in one way or another, and sometimes I, I parcel myself out amongst the characters. And the, the parts that I'm the least proud of are the ones that seem most important to reveal. I did, in fact, do that belly button thing. And test two babies hadn't even been invented at that point. I just dreamed them up. Um, I would love to hear from you, um, so please don't be shy about this. This is, this is the gift to me that, um, that's really what, what makes me love giving a reading and, and, and coming here to Berkeley. So, absolutely any question. Where? In the back. Yes! So, uh, who are your favorite poets? My favorite poets? What an interesting question. I, you know, I, um, I actually read poetry in a very random way when I'm writing. I don't read novels. Um, um, uh, at the moment, I'm looking at Mary Oliver, Jane Kenyon. Um, I'm... I'm I have to say that some of the the poetry, and I do consider it poetry, that that inspires me most comes in the form of songs. I'm I'm a big listener to music, and um, so I'll put Lucinda Williams on that list, and I'll I'll put Hank Williams on that list. Actually, I I happen to be um, a, a writer who believes in in. Uh, Short and simple writing. So Raymond Carver, as poet and as short story writer, is um, 
well, I have no gods anymore, but um, is, is a writer I deeply admire, a human, flawed writer who I deeply admire. Yes, Melanie. So one of the questions I get asked a lot by students is how, you know, students who really have a story that they want to tell, a very personal story, and when they are able to get it out, it doesn't work as a story. So how, what advice do you have as taking, you know, the very personal, either just yourself or a specific story that you want to tell, and allowing it to be fictionalized? Aha, allowing it to be fictionalized. Well, I begin, whether a person is, when I teach, and when I read a manuscript, the first question I always ask is, what is this story about? And when we're workshopping a manuscript and everybody's read the manuscript, I ask the uh, the readers of the manuscript. And you'd think at least the person who wrote it would know. But it's amazing how often, you probably know this, how often we will... People will, writers will, good writers will, sit down to write without knowing what the story is about first. So this book, for instance, is not about me. It is not the story of my life and everything that happened in it. It's about a particular arc, a particular journey. I could, and I could publish, I'm, I'm, believe me, I'm, I'm not going to do it. But I could publish five different memoirs. I, I, I do the memoir of myself as a mother. I do the memoir of myself as a writer. I do the memoir of myself with, with men and, with, and not with men. I, I do the memoir of myself in nature. This is one, one arc. And it is so different for, for a writer when he or she realizes, goes beyond telling what happened. First this, then this, then this, then this. To seeing the big journey, you know, the themes. Um, I, I like to teach memoir, even to fiction writers, because I think it's, it is the great proving ground for a fiction writer. It's, it is the story that you know best. And it doesn't make it easy that you know it best, because one of the things you have to do in memoir is know what doesn't belong there. Not everything does. Um, the first sentence of this book is... Um, um, the house, I, I don't even need to read it really, the house that I, where I grew up in Durham, New Hampshire was the only one on the block with a fence around it. Um, I could have said 300 different things about that house. It had a yellow door, it had a brick walk, there were geraniums and pots. I chose the particular image that was going to point the reader in the direction of the particular story I was going to tell, which is the story of a girl who felt isolated, alone, I think you get it, um, and and the particular journey that I made, because we want our characters to go on a journey, we want our character to be in a different place on the, the last page than she was on the first, is to a girl who, who does not have any fences around her, a woman, and, and who feels at home in the world. I felt profoundly not at home in the world. Uh, a girl who is so willing to let a 53-year-old man tell her what to wear, what to eat, what music to listen to, not listen to, what to think, uh, to leave her college, to leave her family, a strong girl, mind you, a smart girl. Um, that is a girl who does not feel at home in the world, at home in her skin. And that's the journey of that character. You need to know before anything else, what is the journey my character's going on? This is Berkeley free speech. Now's your moment. <laughs> yes. In Guatemala. Guatemala in uh, what's the name of the town? 
It's a, it's a little tiny town called San Marcos La Laguna. It's not a fashionable, it is not to be confused with San Miguel de Allende. It's a real Mayan village. And it's the most it's unlikely place for a writing workshop to be held. And I, I honestly didn't pay this woman to ask this question, but I'm thrilled that she does. I happen, it happens to be my labor of love that um, once a year, every year for 15 years, I, um, uh, I invite, I help 15, 16 um, writers or people who want to write or just have a story to tell. They may never have written anything. Um, join me in this little village. I think it's very important that it be so far away from everything um, to tell their story. And many times on the shores of that lake, I could get all sort of Marin County about it, that there's some special energy emanating from those volcanoes. But um, I have many times heard people tell about, talk about experiences and events in their lives that they had never shared with anyone before. Um, um, so yes, that... I do that every February. It's, it's a week that um, uh, I look forward to all year and collapse at the end of. Because <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a very intense eight days. But it, it, it's... I um, actually, when at the moment that Salinger sent me away, there seemed to be no place on earth for me. I knew it wasn't New Haven, Connecticut, and I knew it wasn't New York City and the offices of the New York Times, and I knew it wasn't my parents' house back in New Hampshire. And I went to Guatemala. A couple of, uh, everybody else, you know, who my age group, who went to Guatemala in 1973 was smoking a lot of pot and going with a boyfriend. I went with this middle-aged couple, well, they were probably younger than I am now, who were on an orchid hunt. And I fell in love with Guatemala. And the war was going on. It's, it's, a, it's a country and a people, a culture who have experienced indescribable uh, brutality and, and loss. And there is such beauty to that Mayan culture. And, and I get a lot of lessons from it. So I, I always go back. Yes? As a young woman, how did you write about the story of your Well, as a young woman, how did I write about the story of my life? I didn't, is the truth. I, um, what I wrote still at 18, I did not trust readers to hear the true story. And that's part of the journey that, that I've gone on. I was a very skillful writer. I don't think that I actually sort of write better now than I did at 18, if you just are sort of looking technically. I knew the stuff. I was, and you would too if you'd been raised by those parents and had that many hours a day of that stuff. But what I didn't, what I didn't know was the compassion, that, that, that truth, the power of truth the power of authenticity, and the compassion of a reader to, to hear the truth. At the time that I wrote that story, I was suffering from pretty severe eating disorders. Did I talk about that in that story? Absolutely not. I was anorexic. I was bulimic. People didn't even use that word in those days. I didn't include that in the story of my life. I didn't include the fact that I had an alcoholic father. I kept, I, I kept things much more nice and generic very skillfully written. I don't want to disavow everything that I wrote when I was 18. Um, and it's historically now sort of interesting that I, I actually did do include in, the, in the, the paperback edition of this book that original article, and, which is now sort of you know, a period piece. It's you know, almost it's 40, 42 years ago, that, 43 years ago that piece was published. But I did not tell. I did not yet know how to tell the story of my life. It took me a 
I wrote about the Beatles, the assassinations, the Vietnam War. I wrote about some things that were important, drugs and, and music and, and clothes. And, um, uh, um, and I, 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 as I said, I don't want to disavow that girl that I was, but I didn't yet know what I know now. Uh, from It's the great gift of having published work for as long as I have and having heard back from readers um, that the, the braver you are, um, this, is not, this does not necessarily extend to Maureen Dowd at the New York Times, who will slice me up one side and down the other. But the regular reader with no agenda will, will, will take my story. And, and again and again, I have offered up my, you know, I mean, this, you know, uh, the, the description that my narrator gives in After Her of the 13-year-old girl. You know, my, my, my ugliest, least, least lovable sides. And, and what... I, I do it in, in the hope that some reader... Well, actually, I never try to teach any lesson. But, but what I think happens is that a reader feels, oh, I'm safe here. This is a human being talking to me. This is not somebody up in some high mountain somewhere, you know. But it doesn't happen all at once, that kind of courage. I, I say to my students, write as if you were an orphan. I am an orphan now. I have been an orphan for a long time. But, but write as if you were an orphan, even if you're not an orphan. It's, you know, there are so many ways, it, so many ways in our lives in which we do not experience anything close to freedom. I cannot drive down the left side of the road or, or you know, fly off to Greece tomorrow or, or um, tear off my clothes right here. I, I, I or... Um, I, I, I don't even need to enumerate all the things that I can't do, that I'd, that I, that I'd love to do, change, uh, d- determine who's going to be uh, in the Senate next month. But, um, but there, is one, there is one thing, there is one freedom nobody can take away from you, and that's the freedom to tell your own story, that you own, and your only limitations. You don't need to have a bunch of money, you don't need to have a fancy desk or computer, or, you know, I've known so many people who think it's all about the, the computer or the writing program, or, you know, you can have a pencil, you know, you can write in your blood if you have to. You know, the only thing you need is, is the courage to, you know, to go to that place. Even if you're a very primitive, you know, I've, I've worked with people who, for whom English is not the native language, and sometimes beautiful things come out of them, because if they're true, if they're real, it's unmistakable. Yes. Well, this is such a The first part of the question is big enough to answer, and it's, it's, it's an impossible, I'm aware of the time and aware that we're almost at the end of time, but I'm not going to shorten this answer, because there is no short way to address the subject that you've just raised. So, forgive me. Um, when I was, actually, what happened um, to me when I was 18 was not even close to the hardest thing in my life, and neither was the loss of my parents, and neither was the end of my marriage, although those were all very, very hard things. The hardest thing that ever happened in my life um, happened just four years ago, and I will tell you that story as briefly as I can and still um, honor its complexity. Um, When I was 55 years old, having raised three children who had grown and launched into the world, I'd raised them mostly as a single parent. It was, I was struggling pretty mightily for many of those, most of those years. And they were off being fine, and it was finally my moment when I could sort of maybe take care of myself. I, I had this wild desire 
to take care of more children. Um, I felt that I, it was a thing that I knew how to do and that I had a home and, and capacity to love, and I believed that I could make life okay for any child. That was, that was my hubris. I believed that. I believed that this was something I could do. And I had no partner. I had no vast amounts of money. I was working as a writer. But I embarked on the adoption of two sisters from Ethiopia, older children, the kind of children that are not easily adoptable. I didn't need babies in my life. And I went to Ethiopia, and I brought home two girls and within who, who had had more painful experiences than you or I can, can imagine in, in, in many ways. They had lost their mother to AIDS and, and had lived for years virtually alone in a little hut um, with their three teenage brothers and many other people. Um, they didn't speak English. They didn't know the alphabet. They landed in Mill Valley, California with me. And within about three weeks, I recognized, well, I recognized many things, um, that they were older than, than I had been told, which, which really meant, translated into, they've known even more pain and even more trouble than I had imagined. Um, and within a couple of weeks, I recognized that um, I, was not, I, I, I was not really equipped to do what needed to be done, but I had every intention of honoring that commitment. These were children who'd been abandoned multiple times. No way was I going to abandon them. I recognized pretty early that my life as I knew it was over, but I, I attempted for 14 months to be the mother that they needed, but I was not the mother that they needed. And it became so painfully clear um, and in one indelibly memorable session with a therapist, I had brought the girls to a therapist. They were so angry. The older one was so angry, and there was only one person for her to express her anger to, and that was me. And I got it full force every day from 4 a.m. till 10 p.m., um, and sometimes longer. And, and she, the therapist said, don't bring the girls anymore, but come yourself. And when I came, she said, you know, sometimes it just doesn't work. Sometimes you have to give up. I had never given up anything before. I had believed always, I can soldier on and I will make it work. Um, and there is, no, there is no easy way to find a home for two children um, who, who have all the needs that those two very strong, very brave girls. This is in no way a story about the failures of the girls, obviously. It is very much a story. It, it is a story of the failures of me, the inadequacies of me, the, the arrogance of me in supposing, and the failure of the adoption system, about which I have very strong beliefs, the international adoption system. Um, and I'm, I, I have to speak very carefully about that because I would never want to be a spokesperson against all international adoption. But um, it, it is also, in many quarters, a, a money-making undertaking, hugely corrupt. Um, and that was certainly true in everything that took place in my adoption. Um, so there was no help to be found in that agency. I did. I searched for a long time and found a family for my girls. And, and a family about as different from me as, as I could have imagined. Republican, conservative, Christian, fundamentalist uh, 
family in, in a, I won't say where, um, with four birth children, two foster children, and two other adopted children um, from Ethiopia, and, that's, and, and they were the right people for my girls. As, as much as any American person, white American person, for a girl who's been ripped out of her culture um, can be, and her language and everything else can be. And I brought them to their home and said goodbye to them, the most excruciating day of my life. And that was three and a half years ago. And it is the one experience in my life that I have not written about, probably, just about the one. Um, And I do not uh, refrain from writing about it to protect myself. I'm... (laughs) I'm fair game at this point. There's not too too many things that haven't been said about me, um, but I there is no way that I can tell the story of those girls while those girls are are trying to make their make their way in the United States. And I believe they will. Um, I believe they will. I did for the first time this year. I, I I want to tell that story, and I did in a very. The reason you know it at all is that it was known that I adopted the girls, and I put a letter up on my website. Um, after I had said goodbye to them, a very short letter that, that said I, I found a home for them, and I didn't say very much more about it. But hardly a day goes by that I do not get a letter from some adoptive parent somewhere of older, internationally adopted children in absolute despair, um, not knowing what to do or where to turn. And I also know that there are people who have had extraordinary and glorious success and children whose lives have been saved by adoption. And I would never, never for a minute um, discount that part of the story. But um, it, it feels to me very important that, that that story be told for those people who think they're alone, who think the way, you know, the way I did and so, so many times in my life that it's only me and it wasn't only me. Um, and... and uh, and, and in fact, this is actually a much more common event than we know. 25% of adoptions, international adoptions of older children, probably fail. There are no real numbers on it. So this year, I did participate, after much thought, in a documentary about this subject in which their faces, names will not appear, and I say nothing about who they are or what they did or our time together. I speak about the subject. But that is my long answer to that question, and I don't fault you for answering it. You know, if you Google my name, basically you hear two things. You hear Salinger, and you hear she gave up her Ethiopian daughters. And, and that, that will follow me everywhere, and I, I, will, I will answer that question anytime it gets asked. Uh-huh. I read that interview, too. Yes, I did. And I, well, I don't... I, how could I stand here at UC Berkeley and, 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 and condemn schools of writing? I, I didn't attend what... They have proliferated. They have proliferated, and of varying quality, I will say. Um, I was at one point... Um, I Actually, it's been a sorrow in my life that I cannot be a teacher. In, I don't have a college degree, I, let alone a graduate degree, um, and that's why I really created my own stuff, because I... I don't have any credentials. I think I, I, I know I'm a very good teacher, and I sure have a lot of experience as a writer, but, but no, I'm not one of those professionalized you know, people who, who has the certificate that says you can now teach writing. Um, I, I think that it's, you know, if you can um, afford it, I think it's an extraordinary thing to do. I, I've experienced a lot of 
uh, really questionable programs that I think just sell the degree, mm-hmm. basically. I, I was at one point hired to teach in a what was called a low-residency writing program. If there was a student who wasn't allowed in that program, I don't know who that student was. And, and an awful lot of MFAs get... Un- and I felt badly for the students, you know. They were going to spend $30,000 emerged from that program unable to, to, ha- to have a teaching job or let alone a publishing career. Um, I think there's many routes to being a writer, and I'd never say that, you know, uh, uh, that, um, that school isn't the one or is the one. Um, it wasn't my one. Um, um, if, uh, uh, I mean, I had a school. It was, it was 78 Madbury Road, Durham, New Hampshire, sitting at my parents' dining room table with each of them with their yellow legal pads. When my mother died, I think maybe I'll just end this because I, I know it's very, we're way past the normal time, but I wanted to be able to explain my mother. To, I, I thought, maybe someday I'm going to meet somebody that I'll really want to be able to explain my mother to, but that person never met my mother. And so I had one day to clear out her house, and, and there were boxes and boxes. She was a teacher. She finally, she taught in night school at an Air Force base, my mother, the summa cum laude from Harvard taught night school and she had these these she she had these boxes of manuscripts that she'd marked and there was more red pen than black talk about you know this is not the book about salinger this is much more the book about my mother my mother was a character to you know make him shrivel to the ground um there was more red pen than black. And my mother's comments slashing through their writing and, and you know, just citing, you know, this poem by this person and this line in Shakespeare. Um, uh, that was my school. That was a pretty bizarre school. Um, you know, some people have their school out alone in the desert. And, you know, some people have their school. And, you know, a dear friend of mine, my friend Joe Loya, a wonderful writer, had his school in prison. You know, he was in prison for nine years and he read. And he emerged a, a fabulous writer, um, but 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 I hear you. I, I hear you. It's it's. Um, uh, I'd actually like to be a student now. I'd I'd love to take I'd love to take writing classes. Um, n- n- having been a writer for this many years, I'd love to sort of go backwards and and see what's said. Um, I, um, I I I. I could happily talk to you much longer, but I recognize we're, we're way past the time. But I will be signing books, so um, uh, we can carry on a little bit of a conversation there, too. And thank you so much for coming. This was a total treat. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.